in the e-commerce space, selling private label products on Amazon has been a popular side hustle for the last several years. But is it still the best way to go? Or is there a lower risk, higher reward way to turn your ideas into profits? To find out, it's time for another Side Hustle Showdown. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because you're worth more than what it says on your paycheck. This week, I'm excited to welcome Greg Mercer back to the program. Greg's a seven-figure Amazon seller and the creator of the popular Jungle Scout product research and Amazon analytics software. Side Hustle Show listeners can try it out for half off your first month through my affiliate link at sidehustlenation.com slash Jungle Scout. But this is the second episode of our showdown series this month, highlighting the pros and cons and potential alternatives to popular side hustles. And the alternative I want to present to Greg's private label strategy on Amazon is product licensing. This has been the topic of a few different episodes in the archives, and representing the licensing side of the debate today is another returning guest, Stephen Key from inventright.com, and the author of One Simple Idea, Turn Your Dreams into a Licensing Goldmine While Letting Others Do the Work. In both strategies, you're exercising your creative muscles. You're looking to make improvements or modifications to existing products. In private label, you're going to be responsible for the manufacturing, the branding, and the marketing of that product. Whereas in licensing, you seek out a larger company and let them take care of all of that in exchange for percentage of sales. Notes and links for this episode are at sidehustlenation.com slash showdown two. The first voice you hear is going to be Greg's. Ready? Let's do it. When I'm thinking about it, I'm looking for opportunities that essentially have the largest differential of how much demand there is versus how much competition there is. So it's like I want the products that are have the highest amount of demand with the lowest amount of competition. Yeah, I think those are the, the top opportunities on Amazon. Do those unicorns still exist? <laughs> I mean, everybody says, like, like, oh, especially in SEO, like I want a, a high volume keyword with low competition. And every now and again, you, you still find them, but it seems more saturated than ever. Yeah, you know, there's always going to be more and more sellers on Amazon. I would say that, yes, the unicorns still exist. Or just like a trend that I've seen though over seven years now is that as Amazon just gets larger and larger and larger, these products that, like in my opinion, sell very well, like hundreds of units per month, they're just getting to be like more and more and more obscure. Just like little things like certain fittings for pipes or since there's so much demand on Amazon now, since so many people are shopping there, these really kind of obscure items are things that you wouldn't really think of are typically the items that do have that large differential between how much demand there is versus how much competition there is. Okay, interesting. So you're saying it's not necessarily carving out a piece of the pie, but you're saying the pie just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It definitely does. I mean, and I think COVID's accelerating that actually. As you know, we have tons and tons of data kind of on Amazon, have a pretty good understanding of what's going on in there. During COVID, we've seen sales increase overall about 40% on Amazon. And to be honest, I don't think that is ever going to go back down. I don't think there is like a a post-COVID drop after that. I don't have a crystal ball, but if I had to make my best prediction, it would be that the stay-at-home, the quarantine accelerated a lot of the slow adopters on Amazon. 
And you know, now they have prime memberships. Now they're trying it out the first time. They're realizing how easy it is to get all this stuff. They don't have to drive around and do errands all the time. So I mean, my guess is even this world after COVID, I think that demand's still going to continue at like this elevated level. So yeah, I mean, especially recently, we've just seen a very large surge on Amazon. Yeah, we've seen the same thing just in our own household. I talked about this on a recent episode where every week we'd be going to Target, Trader Joe's, Costco, and we haven't been to the stores in months. Like everything just comes to our house now. And it may actually save us money from like doing the impulse buy stuff at at Target and Costco. It's like, oh, that looks interesting. So I think you might be onto something there. Steven, what does the product research phase look like for you? Or is that even the right term to call it? Well, it is. I, I think you're always looking for opportunity. I think if you're a creative type, you're looking at a potential licensee, basically a company that you're going to license a product to, and you're looking at their product line, and you're looking for opportunities. Maybe something they've missed. Maybe you can make a small improvement. What can you add that has a little bit of value to their existing product line? And then you show them that idea. And if it's a a big enough point of difference, they take it and they license it from you. So there is a lot of homework to be done. The smart ones that are licensing their their product ideas, are they're looking very closely at maybe reviews on Amazon. They're looking at where the opportunities are. Maybe they, they have a problem that they're observing and they come up with a solution. But a lot of it has to do with just doing your homework, looking at the potential licensees, product line, and making sure it's a good fit. So, no, there's a lot of homework up front that you need to do. We call it the first step, studying the marketplace. Okay. Does that start with a company or a product category that you're interested in as a consumer? Like, where, where would somebody first start with this? Well, it's all over the board, I, I think. Typically, inventors will observe a problem, and they'll come up with the solution to that particular problem. I don't think that's the best solution to do this, though. I think what I like to recommend, the professional product developers, inventors, they really look at a company's product line, and they know that those designers or that company is going to come up with uh, new products. They know it. They also know that those designers are going home at 5 o'clock, and they, they don't have their heart and soul into it. So if you're a creative type and, and you know that, you can basically out-design the designers in the company because they just get a paycheck, and that's not that motivating. But for entrepreneurs, inventors, heck, we're really motivated. So we're thinking about it 24-7. We're thinking about it, how can we drop an idea into their product line and use their size to leverage their position in the marketplace? Like the counter-argument is like, okay, if this company has a line of products and they've gotten a critical mass of negative reviews, like, isn't that a priority internally to address that? Or it's like, is there still room for somebody like some random third party dude to come in and be like, hey, a bunch of people are complaining about specific feature XYZ. Like, how about I try and license that to them? Recently, we had the president of Lifetime Brands, the largest kitchen company in the world, and they have a team of in-house designers. And I asked them point blank, why do you need us from the outside? You have all your market data. You're looking at trends. So why us? And he said, well, it's really simple. When I opened the door, potentially I could have thousands of people designing for us. It's like a crowdsourced kind of thing. Yeah. And we have a different perspective. As consumers, we are experts in certain fields. We know what we like. We know what we don't like. And more and more companies are embracing open innovation as the number one way to find a new idea. It's outpacing internal R&D. 
It's outpacing crowdfunding. So open innovation is exploding. All right. I like it. Now, does, does Greg's demand competition differential come into play for you, or is it just more based on like the product itself? I mean, there's some spaces that are very crowded, right? And those companies that are looking for ideas, they, they're concerned that, that you really understand the similar products on the market, that you understand that landscape very clearly, and you do have a point of difference compared to similar products. My philosophy is that don't reinvent the wheel here. Look at the products that are excelling extremely well and make the next innovation, make that next improvement, because there's already a proven marketplace for it. Yeah, and I think that's something that both of you guys do really well. And this is, broadly speaking, this is how products get better. That's how the world, how the world becomes a better place. Because it's like this constant innovation, not necessarily these revolutionary ideas, but it's like, how do we make what's already out there, what's already popular, a little bit better, make people's lives a little bit better? I really like that stuff. Thank Greg, do you have a minimum metric in terms of either sales volume or competition that makes something interesting to you these days? It really depends on, I think, like how much startup capital you have to invest and what would be like considered a success for you. A lot of people, you know, if they're selling 20, 50 units per month and from that making an extra 500 bucks, they're really stoked about that. And that's like a business they would want to invest in. It doesn't require that much inventory because you're, you only need to purchase 20 or 50 units. Other people are, have these larger ideas of what kind of like business success is. And they're like, Hey, if this product's not selling 500 units a month, then it's not really worth my time. I only want to look for products like that. So I think, I think it's really up to the, the individual business or listener to be thinking about like, what would be considered a success for you? That's fair. What are you seeing as realistic startup costs, either on the, on the low end or maybe mid tier for somebody, uh, a new private labeler? Yeah. So let's say we're going after a product that sells hundred units per month. If you're selling a product in the $20, $30 price range, you know, you're probably talking about, let's call it six, eight, maybe $10 to get it landed into the US. So I typically start with three months worth of inventory. So let's call that 10 bucks times 100 units per month times three months. I think that'd be $3,000 worth of inventory. And then just like real rough figures, let's call it an extra thousand bucks to be talking about packaging design, photography, additional little startup costs. So if you do the math like that, it's like, if you don't have a few thousand dollars to get started, it's going to be pretty tough to launch a private label product. Yeah, it can be a really capital intensive business. Even once it starts selling, it's like, well, now I got to reorder more inventory. And we should note too, so junglescout.com slash estimator is a free tool where you can start to get some metrics. So you start plugging in different sales ranks and seeing okay, what is the estimated sales volume? Because Amazon isn't going to tell you, hey, this thing sells 100 units a month. But you can plug that in and do that across several different products and say, okay, here's here's kind of where I'm estimating the volume in this category. On the licensing side, what kind of startup costs are you looking at there? Well, it's very low. What I like for people to do is realize you're selling the benefit of your idea. So that means you don't have to build a prototype in most situations. You could do a 3D computer-generated model to show a company is the benefit strong enough for you to be interested in it. See, what I think is that I kind of flipped it to say, look, don't go ahead and build prototypes, file patents, start a company, do all that. Let's see if the benefit is strong enough first. And you do that with a one-page sell sheet with strong marketing copy, the one-line benefit statement, the value proposition at the very top, maybe a big 
large, beautiful shot of your 3D computer-generated idea with a few benefits and start to fish. It's easier to fish today because of LinkedIn. It's really easy to get a hold of all these companies and there's more and more companies that are looking for ideas. So your cost is basically maybe a sell sheet. You could probably get that done for $100 to a couple hundred dollars. You might want to file a provisional patent application if you're a little worried. A lot of people are. You could file that yourself. There's a, a few programs that could teach you how to do a good job, which I think you should. You could file it yourself for about $70. So $500, you're in the game. And I like that because now it's a game of ideas. We want people to be an idea factory and not have that barrier of patents and startup costs and everything else. So it's a very low cost. Yeah, your, your successful students are churning out these ideas. They've really honed these creative muscles. We talked to David Fedewa a couple of years ago, and it was, can creativity be learned? And he was like, absolutely, yes. I was not a creative person. And then through this practice, he was able to go through that. Yeah, we see a signed licensing deal almost every week now. Yeah, a huge volume. And we also help with the designing of the marketing material. On any given day, we have about 500 projects we're working on for people. Yeah, so it's very different in terms of startup costs versus potentially thousands of dollars in physical inventory versus this idea of selling the benefit, using this, uh, you know, spending a couple hundred bucks on the provisional patent and making this sell sheet really stand out and shine and, you know, maybe getting this 3D model mock-up created without even needing a, a physical prototype. And then it's kind of off to the races of this next stage in the game of trying to trying to sell this thing, trying to find somebody who would be interested in this. And you said the LinkedIn is your primary path to do that today. How does that work? Well, especially now, everybody's staying at home. So it's really easy to get a hold of people. We like LinkedIn because you don't have to be a salesperson. We really want you to find the right person within those companies that are really looking for ideas. So the reach out is really quite simple. We do recommend to reach out to do your homework, study the, all the potential licensees, look at their size and look at where their, their strengths are and weaknesses are and, and reach out to 10 to 20, 30 of them and start to fish and don't pitch. Just ask them about their process, if they're, if they're willing to, to work with inventors and then find that right person, find that champion at that company and send them a sell sheet. What we like about it, it's easy to do. You can do it anywhere at any time and the cost is extremely low. But you're just going to get a lot of no's. Yeah, be prepared for that rejection. Yeah, I, I tell everybody, be a no collector, right? Because there might be a yes somewhere in there. But you have to stay in it long enough to build a relationship with these companies. So they'll eventually give you a target to hit. So that's kind of the initial conversation is, so you're searching by job title? What, what What's the kind of job category that I would be looking for? It's usually the product manager. That's the best person, but they, they really don't care where an idea is coming from. Someone in sales, I love those guys. If they like it, they'll sell it internally for you a little bit. Don't reach up too high. If you're looking at the vice president or president, maybe in smaller companies, but usually they're going to send it down to someone actually to do the work. And so there's no ownership there. So hit the mid-level product managers, people in sales, and do not reach out to the biggest companies. They have a tendency not to license very much. The market leaders don't innovate. They buy innovation. But isn't, isn't that what licensing is? Well, they have such great distribution that they're kind of last to the party. So they let everybody else do the hard work. So we see 
the sweet spot is the mid-sized companies. It's the sweet spot. Okay. What what qualifies as mid-sized for you? I mean, mid-sized is still big. It's just not the billion-dollar companies, right? It's not the Procter & Gamble's or the Johnson & Johnson or Pepsi's and Cokes of the world. They're, they're a little bit smaller. They're a little bit more aggressive. But even the large players, are everybody's looking for a good idea. I mean, think about it. There's no company in the planet that won't look at a good idea. They're just a little bit harder to deal with, to navigate the licensing agreement. Maybe the intellectual property gets a little bit a little bit more difficult. And there's just how to fit into their supply chain gets a little bit more complicated the larger they are. But find the guys that are mid-size that want to be the big guys. So how do you do that? Just look at their culture too. Who's running it? You know, how many years have they been in business? Look at their product lines. Look at see if they are innovative. You can usually tell the way they treat you if they're the big boys. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Now, Greg, we skipped over an entire step here of the actual manufacturing process and choosing a manufacturer, and that's an episode in itself. And that's one angle that the licensing doesn't deal with. It's like, I'm going to, this company already has a process in place for building manufacturing products. I don't need to worry about that. But since we skipped that step, let's skip to kind of the initial marketing discoverability for a private label product. Is it, I imagine, more today than just send that inventory into the uh, Amazon warehouse and hope for the best? I imagine there's a little bit of marketing muscle. You got to flex behind it to get some eyeballs toward that listing today. So I am just talking about on Amazon here. So depending on where you want to sell this or different channels, it'd be a little bit different. 
the beauty of Amazon is it already has so much traffic there and so many eyeballs, right? So it's like Amazon already gets tons of search volume, I'm sure, for whatever you're selling, or especially if something that has decent demand. So at that point, it's like, how do you get your listing in front of those people who are searching for it? There's the inorganic way, which is through Amazon's paid ad platform, which is actually pretty simple, much more simple than, say, Google AdWords or Facebook, for better or for worse. So that's one way you can do it. You know, you can pay for those clicks to get it up at the top of the search results. Is it worth doing that if you have no reviews? Probably not. It's going to be more expensive. I typically do. But if you're trying to be kind of much more like cost conscious or you have a pretty tight budget, I'd probably wait until you do have reviews before you run any paid ads. And then organically speaking, it's like, what does Amazon use to determine their organic search rank? It's a combination of a few things. One is, of course, the keyword relevancy. So is your product actually relevant for what the person's searching for? And the next two are essentially your conversion rate of your listing, as well as your sales velocity or sales volume. Now, a lot of things go into conversion rate, everything from the quality of your photos to how expensive it is to what kind of reviews you're getting, a whole bunch of other things like that. But I mean, those are the primary things that you can be thinking about. So Amazon wants to rank the products at the top that are selling well. They convert well when someone lands on your listing and are relevant for what the person's actually searching for. So if we think about it that way, or like we kind of understand that from a big picture, that means that you want to have, of course, reviews. <laughs> Once you get to five or 10, it starts converting way better than when you have below that. That's like a little bit of the magic threshold. Uh, of course, you want to have high quality photos. You want to be thinking about how could I answer any questions that a consumer would be having about this since they can't pick it up and hold it and feel it. They want to make sure they can get all their questions answered just by looking at the photos any advice for somebody trying to get those initial 510 reviews? So actually, starting at the beginning of this year, Amazon's made it way easier for us. They opened up the Vine program, which you may be familiar with, to FBA sellers. And it's free right now. So the Vine program's been around on Amazon for like a half decade, but historically it was only open to 1P vendors. And how it works is they have a pool of Vine reviewers. It's an invite-only program from people who they think leave unbiased and high-quality reviews. This group of people are able to get your product for free. They're not required to leave a review, but Amazon claims that like 99% of them do leave a review when they get your product for free. And pretty quickly, you're going to get quite a few reviews from these people. You can give away up to 25. So if you give away 25 units, you usually get 25 reviews. Most of them come within the first week or two, but some of them come in week three or week four. So really... Since Amazon released this at the beginning of 2020, it's now pretty dang easy to get those first 10 reviews. The one caveat I'll add to this is I believe the Vine reviewers look at things with a little bit of a more critical eye. So like your average review from this group is probably going to be a little bit lower. So I mean, you really, this is always true, but I mean, you always need to make sure whatever you're selling is high quality and it's naturally going to get good reviews. But I think even more so with this particular group. Yeah, that's there's there's no guarantee it's going to be a five star review, but that's interesting. So you can give away up to twenty five at your say your landed product cost was sub ten dollars, so another couple hundred bucks in investing in this initial reviews, and then maybe it makes sense to turn on the ads and crank up some of the exposure that way. So that's interesting. That is new to me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, before that, it was really difficult to get those initial reviews because. You know, there's only a few percent of all Amazon sales result in a review. So it's like, man, 
I need hundreds of sales in order to get those first 10 reviews, but without any reviews, it's hard to get these sales. So the Vine program has been a real like blessing for FBA sellers. And then after that, the algorithm can start spinning in your favor and it's on autopilot. You just got to keep an eye on inventory. It's smooth sailing from there, coming up with the next product idea. What happens next? I mean, it's it's a business. So of course, <laughs> you're always going to have bumps and bruises and hiccups and little problems and frustrations with Amazon and other people showing up in your listing. You don't know why. So in a perfect world, it would be just kind of on autopilot. In reality, there's going to be some ongoing kind of like maintenance and work and stuff that you have to do, little little issues you have to solve kind of like along the way. But when creating a private label product and selling on Amazon, like 80% of the work's front-loaded before you even make kind of like that first sale. After that, besides the more like unforeseen or unpredictable things that do happen, the majority of the work is yeah, making sure you're reordering inventory and you're optimizing your PPC. Okay, that makes sense. Steven, let's say now we're talking about the kind of the marketing side, like getting closer to getting a deal signed. You, let's say you, you've done your LinkedIn outreach. You've gotten a couple people who have come back without that. You, you stopped collecting no's. You got a couple people to say yes. What is that next stage like? Are they going to want to see a physical prototype? Like, Where does the conversation go from there? Depends on the complexity of the product. They're going to want to see a prototype. And then what type of prototype do they want to see? It all depends on the category. Some of the simple ideas that we, we see that gets licensed, sometimes it doesn't even go to a prototype. They just get it. They see it. Some industries want to do part of the design themselves. But some of them, they want a working prototype. If they're going to invest hard dollars, and it's going to be expensive, they want proof of concept. So we tell everybody the best thing to do is determine what type of prototype do they need, videotape that prototype working, control it. Because just because they ask for a prototype, you send it off, it's going to break. And maybe they don't know how to use it. It gets lost. And those prototypes are expensive. So videotape it, show it. And if you can do a, a demo yourself, I would highly recommend that. So you can always control the pitch. Are you asking for an NDA at any point in this process? It feels, this is always like my pushback with this. It's like, hey, big company, million dollar company. Here's an idea. Like what's to stop them from being like, thanks, see ya. I get that question quite often. And if you watch Shark Tank, you're going to believe that you need a patent on everything. 99% of all the products that we see get licensed, there's no patent. It never will be. In fact, today, I don't think you can protect any idea. If Apple cannot protect the iPhone, what chances do the rest of us have? That's just reality. I, th I think intellectual property is important. It does give you perceived ownership. So it depends on the industry and the company. That perceived ownership, if you're a market leader with a patent application, a provisional patent application, it has a little bit of, you take away a little bit of risk, but they they need a reason why they're paying you. That's why you file a provisional patent application to satisfy the people that are asking, why are we paying you and not somebody else, or why are we paying you at all? But companies have realized it's not about intellectual property. Most ideas have a very short lifespan. If you're looking at the short lifespan, if you're looking at the new laws, at the USPTO that's made it even harder to protect ideas. And even if you had the funds to go to federal court to protect an idea is about $2 million. The bottom line is companies don't care. So you think they do. That's the fear that we've been sold. 
That's the fear. I mean, 97% of all patents never make a dime. So when you think about it, hundreds of thousands of patents are granted every year. 97% never make a dime. We're being sold on this fear. Companies need ideas for two reasons. They have to be competitive. The market demands it. They have to be, it's really first, sell first, sell fast. That's really the, the best protection. And the best protection when you're licensing, just find that market leader that's got great distribution. But if you're successful, and I think we all know that, you will be copied and very quickly. Yeah. And this is, it's definitely the same thing on, on Amazon. Thanks in part to the Jungle Scout software to see uh, what else is out there and what's working. Okay, so 99% of licensing deals aren't patented. That's really an interesting, surprising stat to hear. Have you found that these mid-size companies have a system or process in place for working with inventors, for, for dealing with this stuff? It's like It's just a matter of finding who that decision maker is or who's in charge of that department? If you go back and look at the toy industry, I think they're best in field. They've been working with outside independent inventors for 70 years. So they have departments and like Hasbro, the largest toy companies in the world, they've got a acquisition department. So they take it very serious. Hasbro, if you look at their product portfolio, 60% of those products they sell has come from the outside. So that's why it's so important to some of these companies. That's why they don't steal your ideas too. If you steal someone's idea, the door is going to close. So if you embrace open innovation, you're you're trying to treat that inventor very fairly so he comes back. He's an asset. They don't worry about paying you a royalty. And the thing that's really crazy here about, about startups, someone asked me, why would I license an idea for a small royalty when I would just start a company? Well, when you think about what is the net profit at the end of the day for a company? Well, let's turn around. Let's pose that to Greg. What's the target profit margin for you on a private label product? It's typically around 30% is going to be the my target margin. Now, like if I look at my business last year for 2019, it was less than that. It was between 20 and 25%, but I'm shooting for around 30. Okay. And that's gross margin on cost of goods sold and advertising. And then there's other overheads and stuff taken out after that. Correct. And if we look at kind of all the products, how it would work out is like most things in life, it's kind of like the 80-20 rule. You know, some of these are great products that are very profitable. There's other ones that are very low and it's like, man, should I cut these or stop selling them type of thing? Yeah. At the end of the day, when you, when you roll it all up, it's between 20, 25%. Now, Stephen, continue. Well, for some of the other companies that we're dealing with, it's closer to 10% at the end of the day. So, and of course you have hits and misses and everything else, but at the end of the day, when you think about a 5% royalty, why would you start a business? It's just no risk. That's what we get that argument all the time. Steve, you know, the royalty is so small. Well, you know, five, six, seven percent, maybe a little higher sometimes. And given that there's no risk and everybody, you put the risk on that company that's got great distribution, shelf space and everything else. For some people, it makes perfect sense. Okay. So that's the core difference here is like, because Greg, you're taking the inventory risk and you're doing all of this legwork, you can command higher profit, basically percentage of sales, assuming you can get the distribution, right? Which is another advantage on the the licensing side is like these big companies, they've got deals in place beyond just Amazon. But in exchange for that, you're looking at five to 7%. Is that typical off of, off of top line sales if, if they eventually produce this thing? The five to 7% you're talking about uh, as far as the royalties? Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, it depends on the volume. 
if if it's consumables, it's going to be a little bit lower because the volumes are staggering. Typically, it's about five percent. I've seen them as high as ten. That's pretty high. But I think the difference is, I think you you mentioned it too. It's the distribution. I mean, the way we do the math, we tell everybody, look, if your product doesn't sell one a week, it usually gets kicked to the curb pretty fast at retail. So if if you've got 10,000 accounts, potentially that potential licensee, and they're selling one a week, you're going to sell 10,000 a week. The numbers are pretty high. Lifetime brands, given their size, they're worldwide. They're in 65,000 doors. That's pretty big. Usually it's not that big. You know, if you're in 10, 20,000, you're going to move a lot of product. Yeah. Do you see like, you know, a five-year deal, a 10-year deal? Like, does it have a, an age-out clause? Well, it, it does. I, I think in some categories, like the kitchen category, there's some the strategy for a few of those, like OXO or Joseph Joseph, they play it very safe. They're, they're not reinventing the wheel. They don't want gadgets. They're going to take products that people are using every single day and making them just a little bit better. Those could have a lifespan of 10 years. I think that's probably a little long. So there, there's a runway too. It takes you know about a year to get the market to, and then to get all that distribution takes a little bit of time. I think three to four years, you're doing pretty good. If you're consistently churning out ideas, pitching companies, and then hopefully have a couple that hit, and then within a year or two, you're starting to collect some checks. Well, I think if you're smart, what happens is that you get that first product in and you start to develop line extensions, extend the life a little bit. They like that. And then look at their product line very carefully. And since that door is open, see what else you can do. And then stay in one industry long enough that you build relationships with those companies so they know you. They're kind of giving you their wish list. So you have a target to hit. But at the end of the day, it's always numbers. It's always math, right? And the more doors you you knock on, a few of them are going to open up. But we see ideas that sell 50,000 pieces to millions of pieces. We have a a technology that was had been licensed that's on every truck in America. Those are staggering numbers, right? And and some of them, you know, are seasonal. You might be lucky to sell for two months and it's gone. It all depends on where you want to play. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. Greg, you ever considered going down this path? If you come up with some innovation that might be worth more to an existing company than to, to adding to your own portfolio? To be completely honest, I know very little about the the kind of the path that Steven's talking about and teaching. So it's kind of a new world to me. I would say by like my personality is more of like creative type. My whole life I've enjoyed kind of like building things and tinkering with things and thinking about how I can make adjustments or make stuff better. It sounds like you'd be perfect for this. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very intriguing. I th- think one I've only been brief or like very vaguely familiar with like the licensing world. So like wouldn't really know how to get started without looking for resources. Like of course Steven provides, but then two, the part that would probably be challenging for me. And I, I think Steven would say this probably for most people is just not to get discouraged when you're pitching this thing. You have an idea that you love and it's great. And you start to reach out and you get 10 no's and I'm kind of just like a bad salesperson. I think I get discouraged easily when a bunch of people tell me no. <laughs> You know what's really interesting? The best way to get a licensing deal is to take away risk. And I, I really like what I'm hearing. What Greg's telling me, he, he's really got a great avenue to take away the risk, right? And that's really kind of remarkable. That's what I've just picked up here. I would look at the 
the opportunity to find that, that product that's selling well and make a small improvement on it. So now it's a little private label. All right. Run the test and show that it's selling. You'll be able to get a licensing deal pretty darn fast because you just took away all the risk. Oh, okay. So you're proposing, hey, there's a hybrid between these two. I think there's a beautiful model here. And what I've seen too is that in some situations, and I've, I've seen someone just do this, they have kept their online sales that they're doing on Amazon and they've licensed a variation of that, a different size, a little bit different. And they license that to a DRTV company, as seen on TV company. So they're really playing both sides of the world. And that's to me perfect. They can keep their business running. They rebranded it a little bit different for DRTV. They wanted to do that. Price point's a little bit different. But if you've got the ability to take away risk, your opportunity is huge now because that's the biggest risk a company has. Do you have sales? You hear that on Shark Tank all the time. What have you sold? But if you can say, look, here's my point of difference compared to the other products on the market, and this is what we've done each week, and they're going to look at that and go, gee, with our distribution, we can blow this up. Okay, I like it. Stephen, what have you found make like the best type of licensing products? I'm, I'm just trying to envision in my head what some of these would look like. Are they things that are like pretty sophisticated or technical or just small little tweaks? Smaller tweaks are the best, right? Because it's just easier. There's no education required. Manufacturing is probably going to be very doable. So we don't see this reinventing the wheel thing. In fact, we we really recommend don't doing that. It's just too much work and it's too much risk. So it's a small improvement. And I'll give some examples of ones that we've seen from the show. So David, the other inventor we had on, uh, talked about, he called it a chiller puck. Basically, it was like a frozen koozie thing. You'd sit on the bottom of your beer to keep your beer cold all the way to the end. He had another one that was, his were all like beer related. <laughs> another one that was like a pitcher that wouldn't foam as you were like pouring it from a tap. Another inventor, we had a, a softball player whose hands were always getting hurt, like fielding grounders and stuff. So she built like a padded thing to put inside her glove, which I thought was cool. And another guy, Nate Dallas out of Georgia, had kind of pivoted Pictionary. This is how he described it. It was like Pictionary, but a card game version of it that he ended up licensing to Mattel. And so physical products, games, toys, industrial stuff, like Stephen mentioned, the semi-trucks, lots of different angles to go and just kind of by being observant and playing different creativity games in your mind you say well what how can we make this better different smarter faster cheaper fill in your adjective there but i do want to talk about the risk side of the equation a little bit as it relates to amazon you know i read everything store like this is a ruthless competitive business bezos has come out and said your margin is my opportunity so greg have you seen anybody or has it happened to you where you know you're a year deep into your private label business, you got all this inventory spread across the country, and all of a sudden, hey, Amazon, meanwhile, has been mining your data, and they say, here's the Amazon Basics version of whatever you were selling or something similar to that. Are you seeing that happen at all? Yeah, I think it definitely happens. Amazon obviously can see how well all products sell on, on Amazon. They've been growing their private label lineup fairly aggressively. And that gets quite a bit of uh, media attention because the media loves writing about how Amazon's beating up the little guys. And that's the type of stuff that gets clicked. So that's what all the media is written about. But at the end of the day, Amazon's private label products aren't really treated any differently than what any other 3P sellers are on Amazon. 
So when I see Amazon Basics come out with the same product that I have, it's really no different than just the other 10 people that also copied it and came out with it and are selling it on Amazon as well. I think Amazon's under a lot of scrutiny right now for favoring their own products or their own listings over third-party sellers, which in what's supposed to be kind of like an open marketplace. So for a, a period of time, they actually were giving the Amazon brands kind of like these special placement cards and things like that. But ever since that scrutiny started, I think there's some a handful of legal cases open around the world against it. They've removed all that. And is there a website? Like, why is that under scrutiny? I don't know. <laughs> Anti-competition laws or something. I'm not smart enough to get into all of that, but yeah, you're playing in their sandbox. So it's kind of like, you got to play by their rules. Totally. If I was Amazon, I would do that. <laughs> yeah. Their private label brands don't get any kind of like preferred placement or preferred SEO over other 3P products. And actually, I spoke with a lady who worked at Amazon for like 15 years, and she was up to like director level there and leading all of the soft goods line of Amazon's private label products. And I was kind of talking to her about this. And she said, what the media doesn't write about, or a lot of people don't understand is that when a third-party sale happens, we get guaranteed 15% commission off of all of those. Whereas a lot of our private label brands, the profit margins are lower than 15%. So like even financially, they're not incentivized to try to sell one of theirs over one of the third-party sellers because a lot of times they make less money than they do off these like third-party sales. So for them, even from a purely financial standpoint, what's most beneficial just to sell the product to the consumer that they're most likely to purchase or that's most likely to convert. That makes sense. I got a sweatshirt from, I think it was an Amazon brand, forget what it was called, Peak Velocity or something. And it's like my new favorite article of clothing. Like it's really a nice sweatshirt. And it was like 17 bucks or something. So they're doing some innovation, whether it's innovation of fast following what's already selling or creating it totally on their own. Hard to say. I know you mentioned like, hey, you know, after I create this thing, a dozen other sellers come out and come up with a copycat product. Is there anything you can do to maybe not necessarily prevent it, but to build a moat around what you've created? Yes and no. The moats that you're going to build on Amazon are more so around number of reviews, picking up sales velocity earlier, which in exchange gets you ranked higher, which in exchange is going to get you more sales, which is kind of like a little bit of a flywheel type effect. Those are really the protective moats that you're going to build. As far as can someone produce and sell the same item as you, assuming there's no patent, then yeah, absolutely. And they're going to, if or when it starts selling well. I like what Steven said a little bit earlier. What'd you say? Sell fast? Or it was a saying I liked, and I don't know, I forget. Sell fast. And what is it? Sell first, sell fast. Sell first, sell fast. That's a good one. That's That's very true on Amazon as well. And it sounds like all of the these brands that are open to these licensing deals see the same thing that early mover advantage, sell first, sell fast is the best you can do. Any threats that you see, Stephen, on the licensing side? Well, the best protection for an inventor is, is finding that licensee that's got great distribution and great customer service, and they want to work with you. That's the best protection. As, like I said, it has nothing to do with your intellectual property, although it does give you some perceived ownership. I think it's interesting that you talked a little bit about how to protect yourself, right? And I think Greg hit the nail on the head there. I think it's hard. 
Yeah, it just it would make me nervous to have, hey, I found a product that hit, I reordered inventory, I reordered inventory, and now I've got maybe five figures worth of inventory sitting in all these warehouses across the country, and all of a sudden, my account gets into trouble, the competition increases, the Amazon Basics version comes out. What you're doing over there, you're an entrepreneur now. You're taking that risk on for that extra 20% or 10%. That, that to me scares someone like me. Sure, sure, sure. I don't like, I mean, even the large retailers have their private label brands. They kind of watch what's selling. That's been done for years. They got great, whatever they say they can do, they can push it out a little differently, better store positioning, all that kind of great stuff. So there's this risk, right? And I'm, I'm a no-risk entrepreneur, and that's why I like licensing so much. Now, there is definitely risk there, but it's it's very small. But to think that I'm going to be successful someplace, the next thing you know, where I'm being successful can knock me off, let alone everybody else. That, that's not for everybody. Not everybody can take that risk. Do you have any ongoing responsibilities or management roles once you sign a deal? Or is it like, all right, Hasbro, all right, Mattel, like, it's yours now. I will just be uh, collecting my direct deposits. You can. I don't think that's the best approach. I think today, if you're if you've licensed an idea to a company, your story is newsworthy, and because it's newsworthy, you're allowed to. Uh, there's a lot of media outlets will help push your product out because you're you're newsworthy. Where if I'm a company, come up with an idea, take an ad. Where's the story? So we tell everyone, if you've licensed an idea, before you've licensed it, build a, a huge social media following. Be supportive of the community, connect with a lot of other people, and they can kind of protect you a little bit too. We think the fight is not in the court system. The fight is in the social media area now, right? And also, you know what's interesting? Some of the larger companies, let's say Target or Walmart, if they're carrying a knockoff and and you're out there first and you've been selling it and maybe you have some a little perceived ownership. I've seen some of our community reach out to those buyers and say, look, you got a knockoff and I don't want you to take it out because I know that's costly issue. And they're so nice about it, but don't reorder it. And then the retailers have turned around and said, look, we'll carry yours. So it's, it's not about poking people in the eye or threatening them with lawsuits anymore. I think it's just building a, a large platform on social media, have a lot of follow, you know, followers that support you and be the original. To say, okay, I was the creator of this particular product. And then you have kind of your own fan base around that, even if it's being sold by a larger company, sold to these other distribution channels. Yes. But large companies don't want to be poked in the eye by a knockoff. They don't want any bad press. Yeah. Well, they don't, but but everybody can now. It used to be you called customer service and it went nowhere. Now I could post something on their Facebook page. And they have to deal with it now. <laughs> it's changed. All right. Any closing arguments as we wrap this thing up? Greg, anything left on your mind? Just after learning more about kind of how licensing works, and of course, I'm already familiar with the private label stuff. It, as with all businesses, there's no one-size-fits-all or perfect solution for anybody. But as I think about this, it's like the... The model that I'm familiar with, I think is much more, or is probably best suited for the kind of like operationally minded type people that kind of like wants uh, some steps to follow. It's like you do this, then that, and like they're good at like building processes and operational efficiencies. It seems like that's a good option. It sounds like it's also more startup capital, a little more risk, possibly in exchange for better margins. 
Whereas the licensing options really fascinating as well. Myself I might even like to uh, try it one day, but it sounds like it's much more for the people who are just kind of like naturally like the creators or inventors or makers or like the type of people always kind of liking to tweak things or make them better, or like always kind of have an eye out for that type of thing. And then I think probably, I think there's probably tons of people out there like that. And the, what separates the ones that are successful with what Steven's describing are probably the, the ones that could be consistent with reaching out, selling it, finding the right person who's willing to buy it and kind of the making the business of it that way. So it seems to me like, of course, both proven good business models that and that for just different personality types, there's different best fits probably. Sounds good. I've got an idea that came to me just as we were recording here, like an LED type of uh, strip that goes around my monitor. Cause like I, I record in my closet or my kid's bedroom closet. And so like the lighting is all, like always a struggle for me. So I'm thinking like, Hey, you know, this could go anywhere. There you go. Steven closing arguments from your side. Greg hit it, the nail on the head. He's exactly right. I think it has to fit your personality and your skill set. And if, if, if you'd like to run a business and have more control, take on a little bit more risk and you like the operational side of things. Yes. Start a business. But if, if you're the other side, the creative side that, you know, math isn't your thing and school is never, you were never great at school and heck, you don't want the responsibility or the risk or you don't want to quit your day job or maybe jump off that cliff a little bit. But you are creative and you realize that I'm going to have a lot of ideas and I just want to leverage the companies that can help me and find those partnerships. And that's what licensing really is, is finding a partnership with a company that has everything you don't want to do. But I think Greg's talking about the guys that want to do it all. And that's not what licensing is all about. Well, guys, really appreciate you jumping on and uh, sharing both sides of this story. I learned a ton. And like I said, just inspiring creative thoughts as we go along. Stephen Key, inventright.com. Check out inventright on YouTube. Great library of resources over there. Same story at junglescout.com. Awesome blog, awesome YouTube content over there as well. Greg, Stephen, thank you guys so much and we'll catch up with you soon. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked this episode or anything you've learned on the Side Hustle Show, be sure to tell a friend and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where we're exploring another showdown, this one between freelancing or building an agency. I'll see you then. Hustle on.